Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Above the Clouds, the podcast that explores the ever-changing landscape of cloud technology. I'm your host, Daniel Humphreys, and today I'm pleased to introduce Will Venters, Associate Professor of Digital Innovation at the London School of Economics. Will brings valuable insights into the latest trends and developments in the industry through his research across digital innovation and ecosystems, AI and cloud computing. He is highly regarded for his briefings to European governments and new numerous company executives, offering invaluable guidance in IT strategy and digital transformation. His impressive academic background includes a first-class degree in computer science and a PhD in information systems. And his research has been published in esteemed referee journals and is referenced and quoted in prominent media outlets such as Forbes, the BBC, and the FT. So thanks for joining us, Will. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Delighted to be here. Excellent, excellent. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, I think our listeners would love to hear uh, what you've been up to and working on, if you don't mind uh, sharing some insights. Sure. So I guess maybe just kind of a, an introduction in the type of research and, and work I do. I'm I'm a geek. I You said I did a computer <laughs> science degree. I'm still very much a geek and I am very interested in the technology, but I got very interested in how it actually gets applied in the world. And in particular, large-scale systems and I've been following cloud computing particularly for well over a decade since before it was called cloud when it was called grid computing mainly because it takes IT outside of the organizational boundary the kind of mm -hmm. I remember installing software on Solaris boxes in server rooms or going into kind of basements to to deal with clusters back in the day and the fact that that has now gone outside the organization has significant strategic consequences both you can access lots of computing but also you can start to collaborate and the kind of rise of the api economy which is happening at the moment is is, is evidence of that new forms of, of doing strategically doing technology and i think we're going to get into that conversation later so i've been studying that for a long time in lots of different places from FTSE 100s through to the um, particle physics community at the Large Hadron Collider many years ago, when they were building 600 data centers to plug together Fantastic. to do their analysis. And it was a forerunner of cloud, basically. Mm -hmm. Wow. So some impressive, some impressive projects. Was the Hadron Collider like, have you ever been there uh, in person or? Yeah, I actually haven't. I never gave the ID card. Don't tell anyone I never gave the ID card. Back. <laughs> oh, I, no one will know after this. No, exactly. <laughs> it's certainly not valid anymore. Um, it's an amazing place. I mean, we all know it because Tim Berners-Lee worked there and the, the, the first web server is in a glass box, or was in a glass box at CERN when I was there and I went a few times. It, it's an amazing place full of very bright people, but the way they approach the development of technology and it, it is highly agile and reflects their kind of scientific experimental nature and i'm sure everyone's going to go and see oppenheimer this week and i'm sure you know they're not <laughs> nuclear physicists they're particle physicists different community but you, you that film i'm sure will show how scientists don't always follow the rules and i'm sure kind of think different ways of thinking and approaching technology development and that was really interesting at the time because they were building cloud computing they just didn't know the name for it and lots of them moved into that area so it's a fascinating, fascinating place to visit. Um, it's a very cool place, obviously, and it's kind of slightly James Bondy, but it's also really interesting to learn from their approach to innovation, which was what I was doing 10 years ago. Yeah, awesome. I mean, digital innovation is quite a broad subject, right? Yeah. To you, what, what does that encompass if you can, if you can help our listeners and, and myself? So we, we started calling it digital innovation because suddenly everything became digital. Before that, we call it information systems, which is, right. I'm interested in this space between, kind of we're sat here, but in between the screen and the keyboard, that mm -hmm. was a kind of initial thing. I worked as a programmer, having done my degree in computer science, and I was quite good at it, but discovered that it was never quite enough, that actually there was much more interesting social things going on here. And what we do is bring, managerial understanding kind of the things you would study in in management to the design and understanding of technology when it hits the road so i'm interested in what happens when real world technology hits real organizations and how do those two 
work and what's the consequences of that so i know you want to talk about large language models i'm interested in those <laughs> everyone does right <laughs> when when they actually hit the road when people stop just using them to say hey write me an outline for a report oh isn't it amazing he's given me five bullet points to embedding it deeply in business processes which is hugely different right that's a big difference yeah uh, yeah so how did you get into this this academic space yeah how did it had it yeah i know you, you say you you started off as a geek but it's you know quite quite significant undertaking to to go down uh, the road that you've been on you know has that, yeah and how has that academic background you know uh helped you in in in, in your endeavors like moving forward it's well a couple of things i mean i'm i'm kind of first generation going to university from a state school who went and just loved it loved the experience of learning so kind of there's one thing that the joy of this job is that i continue to read and i continue to meet interesting people and talk to them and find things out and then really get to to, to wrestle with deep thoughts in a way that you you don't elsewhere um and secondly I, I like working with industry. I like working within industry, but I like the freedom that I can take more time to think and then mm -hmm. apply that. And that I can talk to people across different businesses. So I can jump around and do bits for lots of different organizations and therefore discover things like a consultant, I suppose, that you move between different projects. Uh, academics do similar uh, things, except probably in more depth and with more critical insights, perhaps than not than some, not all consultants. But um, yeah, that's that's the joy of this job um, and meeting super bright students um, and hanging out with super bright people um, is kind of fun. <laughs> Fantastic, not super bright. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> so, um, you know, you do a lot of leadership talks, right? Uh, yeah. That's how we met uh, at the yeah. Cloud Expo. Uh, uh, was it March, I believe, earlier this year? Yeah. Um, well, time time does fly, hey. So, you know, do the, 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 those 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 talks have garnered quite a significant attention in in the industry. How do you approach crafting those keynotes to engage and captivate your audience uh, on topics like you know digital ecosystems, AI, and and, and agile innovation? So, I'm probably the, the one thing I try to do is think about what the audience wants to do, wants to know. And I think it's so easy to jump into describing technology. And I try desperately to start not from that problem, but to start from a real world business problem. And also, if I do anything, I spend my time trying to communicate very complicated ideas to people who have not experienced it before. So I try to use lots of metaphors and very simple language to try to describe things so my kind of idea is just to try to get people to understand it and then the second thing i think is enthusiasm i turn up because i'm enthusiastic about this i think the world is being shaped by these technologies and if we properly engage with them and talk and have conversations about that we can make the world a better place and if we don't we could make the world a considerably worse place. So let's take seriously our role here in thinking about and applying our thoughts to, to this, this problem. And that in hopefully kind of resonates with people. And particularly, I think the tech industry struggles to communicate above the CIO, CDO level. And if you're gonna to communicate to a board of disinterested financiers or you know, uh, accountants or chief uh, chief executives who main concern is kind of the, the bottom line, you better not communicate in a way that starts to talk about very complicated integration challenges of, of technology and start to talk about, you know, what can this do and what does it do and how does that work and how does that make things better? Um, but they, you know, it varies depending on who I'm talking to from, you know, 19 year old undergraduates or PhD students or you know my academic colleagues I give very different presentations to of course of course you also have a uh, a blog website if that's correct but uh, binaryblurring.com I saw a, a great post that you you did the other day um understanding AI uh and large language models uh something to do with spiders and LSD or if I got that correct <laughs> Can you tell us a little yeah, bit more that, about that? That piece. A lot of interesting, <laughs> interestingly, they, these things kind of go a bit wild on LinkedIn. It it was an evening talk, so I've 
um, there is a wonderful event that um, a friend organizes um, called Enterprise Technology Meetup. Mm-hmm. And if you can get a ticket to it, it's brilliant. Um, and they meet in the evenings. And he asked me to just do a kind of kickoff talk, 10 minute talk on um, on anything I like, but I, he was kind of interested in generative AI and, and large language models. And it's kind of after work. So, you know, it's between after work and the beer. So kind of you want to make <laughs> an exciting talk. And I'll be honest, I've gone and the talk, if you read the thing, it starts because I've gone to the cinema that weekend um, and we were there going, my goodness, it's Fast and Furious 26 or something or the Spider-Verse. And I am not interested in superheroes. I'm sorry. I know everyone else is, but I'm just <laughs> fine that they turn me off. But I watched this film and I thought, do you know what? This idea of firstly, the LSD is the hallucinations that we see and talked about in terms of large language models. But mm-hmm. my interest has always, and that's where we started, is how these get embedded in complicated, connected infrastructure. And I use the metaphor of the spider's web to say, look, it's not about the large language model that you're going to interact with like you do on Bing or like you do on ChatGPT. It's when those technologies get embedded in deep business processes within a spider's web of other connected machine learning services um, across an ecosystem. That mm-hmm. That's the real consequence. So that's where the spider's web and the LSD was talking about hallucinations, obviously. Um, but that that was the idea of it. So I was trying to connect these themes together because I think if we're really going to engage with it, you know, I mean, the idea, I love the term hallucination because it's, it, why don't we just get error is the other way of talking about it. it kind of, they, they've wrapped this term hallucination around as though it's a, a human-like process. You know, yeah. humans hallucinate. Machines make mistakes yeah. and factual inaccuracies. So let's just call them that, factual inaccuracies mm-hmm. and mistakes. So I kind of, that's what I was playing on. I think that's human nature, though. We always we always want to humanize something that we, we probably don't understand that, that well ourselves. Yeah, um, yeah, and AI has been particularly guilty of that, right? We anthropomorphize it entirely <laughs> rather than just see it as just a machine. And I'm I'm a computer scientist, so we used to talk about tin like these and machines, you know, the, mm-hmm. you can tell the difference between people in the IT industry who talk about machines and people outside it who talk about computers and like have these flat returns for them. Um, but yeah, it's... Well, it's, 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 it's a topic that I was, you know, it's coming up more and more. Um, I think a lot of people thought the, the AI revolution would be machines taking over. Um, but it's not. It's it's these these deep learning systems. It's these models that are taking over. You know, and and, and it's quite an interesting, mm-hmm. interesting space. But off the back of that, I think it's time uh, we get stuck in to the main segment. So yeah, as as some of our listeners might already know, this is above the clouds, and it is all about ratings of buzzwords in the industry. So uh, for those who are tuning in for the first time, I'll be reaching into a lovely cloud shaped hat, which is obviously off screen because always is um and pulling out three exciting uh industry buzzwords uh that we have been uh hearing floating around uh at the moment so will will be t- tackling some of these questions sharing his experience and and giving us his honest take on just how groundbreaking and innovative these buzzwords are rated on a scale of one to ten so to set the, the rating scale straight, a perfect 10 means it's the future of cloud techno- technology, uh, flying high above the clouds. Uh, a middle of the road five implies it's solid, but it's not necessarily pushing any boundaries. And a ground level zero means it's just industry jargon and hollow buzzwords without any real substance. So Will, your first buzzword is LLMs or as we know them, a large language models. Uh, who would have guessed it? So <laughs> um, who isn't talking about LLMs at the moment? Uh, from OpenAI and ChatGPT to Bard and now uh, Amazon's Bedrock. Um, you know, w- what does it mean to you, first and foremost? Well, I guess you probably want the number first. And I guess, you know, the, the audience is probably thinking 11. I'm kind of tempted to say the kind of hold know, off, hold off, hold off, hold off. We'll do the number oh, at the end. Numbers coming. We'll do the number at the end. Okay, I'll do the number at the end. But I was going to say it's not going to be eleven. <laughs> I, I think so. I, I'm 
I'm enthusiastic about the possibilities of large language models for some things. Mm -hmm. They are um, they're kind of amazing. We've all been playing with them, right? I, you know, you send a birthday card now, and you can kind of put five words and say write a poem in the style of Bob Dylan or whatever. And it's <laughs> some of this, some of these in a, these things that we do, like writing reports, etc. This technology is going to be great for. It's going to be embedded in Microsoft's tools. We're probably going to see it being used to support us in writing on Word and producing. Um, PowerPoints in amazingly interesting ways. You know, we're going to embed them in lots of um, chat functions when we're responding to, to, to people online. I think, it, though, it's very easy to get overly enthusiastic about them because most business processes need precision. And our conversation about LSD and hallucinations hides, you know, I, I called them actually in that talk, Pinocchio Oaks. In the sense of, you know, the story of Pinocchio, he builds this boy, mm -hmm. but the boy has just been created as a full boy. They've never had any of the experiential learning of being a boy, and therefore their compass is totally off. And Pinocchio makes all these mistakes and has no idea of um, ethics and has no idea of wrong or right. Or And an LLM is just this um, machine that is kind of uh, repeating our, ourselves and talking back to ourselves on the language that we've given it it's that it's ingested but with no human understanding and the, we need to remain conscious of that so embedding it into a business process where everything needs to be truth that's a real concern if you need mm. to have something that's innovative that are that's okay cool you know you want a picture that looks cool these things are brilliant but i worry about embedding them in business processes where truth is more more important mm. if you're just wanting to kind of craft cool um marketing emails that mm -hmm. look different from the previous one wonderful because actually the words they matter but they, their precision doesn't matter quite the same way mm. or they're trying to construct contracts the outline the structure are fine but you're still going to want to make sure that they're precise and i worry about that issue of precision and bias and yeah all the other problems yeah, it's interesting. Um, so they sure. only capture the reality of the text that they've been given, and we don't Indeed, express yeah. lots of things in text. Like they are limited in what we what they've learned from inherently. Whereas my, you know, fifteen year old's understanding of the world is huge. You know, as ours is that, mm -hmm. that we know is different from what we express in language. Um, but they're going to be huge because they're going to be used in lots of places and they're going to drive us nuts because you're not <laughs> going to phone a call center anymore. You're going to be interacting with an LLM that will talk to you much more precisely and nicely than the current chatbots, but probably won't be as well uh, any better integrated into the business processes that we're really trying to get to mm -hmm. than existing book solutions. One of the subjects that I, I've seen come up a few times is is uh, the recent discussions on on model drift mm -hmm. and, and, and the drop in the performance even of, of ChatGPT4 um, since, uh, it, since its release um uh, yeah and 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 the the effects of the inputs that that are being put in by by the general public for its for its just casual use how, how do you perceive its its impact on 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 the performance and reliability of llms business model drift um in these dynamic real world applications and ecosystems i mean they're really kind of interesting in that you are trying to continue to train a um you're training a model a naive model on the basis of the interaction that people have, but they're not naive in the way that they interact with this thing. Um, and they are, you know, people change their behavior when they start to experience it. So people have been gaming the system. Like we know how to play now with ChatGPT, but also there will be people who are asking phenomenal numbers of questions of ChatGPT based on a ch another ChatGPT to try to, to drive it, which will drift the model. And then finally, the world changes. If you went back three years and had an LLM trained three, four years ago, and started to ask questions about modern life today without you know, Ukraine, without changing relationships and geopolitics, without the COVID-19 um, 
academic yeah. situation, all of those things divorced from its training model, it would be so out of date. Our world is just constantly evolving. And now we, we're rubbish at this, but we're rubbish on a kind of small scale. When you have a 20,000 people in an, in an organization, it's kind of the collective mind. We all make our silly mistakes, but they're different silly mistakes. Mm. When you try to have a singular model, like a chat GPT, you industrialize those mistakes. You And by industrializing them, you're repeating them. And this is what always been the concern with AI, right? It doesn't matter that it's, you know, that we're all a bit biased and there's some terribly racist person in some part of your organization who never employs people of certain color. That's horrible and terrible, but it's one person. If that person's ideas get embedded in a decision-making process in an AI that then industrialize it, then the significant impact of that could be much greater. So I, I do worry about these things when we start to really use them in, in business. Um, but I'm also not the kind of terribly negative person who says we shouldn't use them. They just need to be boundaries around these technologies. Yeah, for sure. I think the, 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 the fact that there's only sort of one real standout um, source on this, this, this generative AI in, 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 in open AI at the moment, we are very much at the, the, you know, the, 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 the beginnings of this journey. Um, you know, imagine what it's going to look like in 20 years. You know, we're all going to have our own personal AIs that, that know us, you know, better than we know ourselves almost, you know, all these different data inputs and the internet of things that we, that we all use in our daily lives. But going back to that competition, do you think the, you know, I think your competition among AWS bedrock now, to, you know, they're making a move, You've got Google's Bard and, you know, Microsoft with their Bing, you know, you know, in partnership with OpenAI, do, do, do you see this rivalry shaping the evolution of LLMs and and and, and the utility across sectors? I, I'm sure it will, and I'm sure there will be. Um, I'm sure there'll be interesting innovation around it. I think things like Llama are very interesting, where you get a small LLM with a constrained um, learning model that can do very interesting things that uh you know and actually do them quite well is really interesting because what really these guys have done is thrown the kitchen sink at this every bit of data we can possibly scrape stick it into an absolutely ginormous um sink of carbon dioxide let's be honest you know a huge amount of electricity used to train these things and then hope that that will produce the best result whereas some people have been producing very precisely um language models that are learning from particular domains mm. and doing very interesting things so instead of feeding it everything why don't we just feed it every research paper in this medical field mm. and then get it to learn that and we'll only use it for that area say just as an example and i think i read kate crawford's book atlas of ai it's a fascinating book and what she does is talk about i mean it's a kind of very critical ethics focused book but she does talk about the infrastructure that we're using to make these things. I mean, you know, we are digging things out of the ground to turn into silicon chips to produce data centers, which use huge amounts of energy to train these models. So one of and to use these models. So one of the kind of interesting things to think about when, you know, well, while I just got back from Tuscany and I, boy, was it hot. What we're thinking about climate change is, is also, do we always need these? as businesses are looking at them and thinking about their carbon footprint, and should we start to be rating them on carbon? And then should we be consolidating them and thinking, let's not, I mean, it's a, it, you know, it, we, we should develop and these things offer huge opportunities as well to reduce carbon usage. But I do think we should bring that into the debate a little bit, particularly when they're all competing and they're all training model after model, and they're all sucking up every bit of information they can to train these models, um, often with kind of dubious consequences. By the way, the other thing I think is going to be really interesting is when ChatGPT, say, let's give it all barred, or one yep. of them, is being used to produce answers to questions that then get reported on the internet and then are being sucked up by their competitors in the learning mm. model. So it's very easy to industrially produce billions of answers to questions out of an AI large language model, which would then be very appealing to the training of another language model. And that feedback loop could be fascinating. Who knows yeah. where, where that would lead? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, maybe maybe that maybe that question around you know how to solve that problem around climate change and you know that's caused by these this huge resource. Yeah, maybe that's something we ask the AI in, in a few years. Maybe it solves itself. You know? Yeah, yeah, possibly. So um, end of the end of the end of the first buzzword. I think that that's a good point to stop. Coming to the ratings, where where, where are we stacking? Where, where where is it in the in the clouds for you, Will? So I think in terms of buzz, it's definitely at the kind of 10 and 11. I would actually put it at five or six. And the reason being, um, I think it's going to be really important. I think it, if you look at economic activity and most things that businesses don't do, it's not going to be core. It may be somewhat marginal. If you think about the actual activity of doing a, of running a business, you know, your core processes. You, you're going to be using it in support of your kind of marketing sales activities, definitely. Mm -hmm. But it may just end up being a plug-in tool alongside lots of other tools that assist in various areas. I think because of the problem of industrializing it, because of that hallucination problem and because mm -hmm. of the nature of work, bringing it into, you know, transactional business processes is going to be difficult. Um, but I, I'm usually wrong on these kind of predictions, so... <laughs> you know, wait to be wait to be modest of it. <laughs> and certainly i think in creative industries you know art music they they are worried we've got an actor strike over in the united states because they're certainly worried as are writers particularly yeah um i wouldn't want to be kind of writing jokes although there's another argument that it's just a plagiarism machine and they're all going to sue it left right and center for stealing Things. Yeah, I think it's it's Getty Images who have sued uh, Mid Journey, uh, yeah, which is quite an inter interesting to see how that goes. Um, okay, wicked. Let's uh, let's move on to subject number two. Uh, so we are looking at data sovereignty. It seems. Uh, so, firstly, would you mind uh, being so kind to define data sovereignty for for our listeners? There's a kind of a lesson, Daniel, you should never ask an academic to define anything. <laughs> our, question, our response is always, well, there's lots of different possible <laughs> definitions of it. it. In a sense, and I think we got onto geopolitics earlier, this, this is the concern of where your data is. Mm -hmm. And where sovereignty fits in terms of data, and particularly as we moved into the cloud, and you know, this has been a debate going on for 10 years in cloud, you know, where do you locate data? What's the issues around that? And there's lots of reasons around where data should be located, technical ones like latency issues um, and le you know, legal issues which get onto data sovereignty. But it's also that kind of issue around who owns the data and what legal jurisdiction is it within, and then how can we control it? And I think there's a lot of recent interest around this. And I think in the geopolitical landscape particularly changes in laws around cloud act in the states but also mm -hmm. you know gdpr in the uh, in europe being these updates to this and then when you think about ai how data is applied and being used it, it's going to be really important if we're going to use ai and learn from our data we probably want a feeling that we bring people with us and i think it's easy to see data sovereignty as a technical issue about legal jurisdictions but i'm um, I was always struck by, and I, I will happily put my hand up. I did not vote for Brexit, but I think it's, um, it's sobering to think that there is clearly a proportion of people in the United Kingdom who, for whom sovereignty matters, mm -hmm. whatever that is. And when you start thinking about solutions, you know, with in lots of different areas their concern may flood out into, I'm not going to use this. I don't want this company to use my data in this way because it's located overseas, because I don't trust this, because I want it in the UK. Um, when I was doing some, um, I was talking with VMware recently, who just done a survey where they actually asked this around NHS data. And I was quite struck by the fact that the NHS that when they asked people, people were concerned about having NHS data outside the UK. And as a cloud person, I'm like, well, you know, encrypt it, doesn't matter, et cetera. But if you're actually going to take people with you, you probably need to think about these issues. So mm. I think when you start looking at geopolitics, when you look at the issues around this, then solutions that, that kind of take that into account. I'd like 
you know, as, as a kind of computer science person, I'd like to pretend that nothing, none of this stuff matters, but I think it does matter for businesses. I think it needs to be thought about. Mm -hmm. um, and as we move, you know, rapidly into an AI world where you're sort of shocking your customer a little bit with the success of these things, they're also going to be quizzical of like, how do they know that? What do they know about me? And where is that data? How do I know that it isn't going off to some rogue state who I don't perhaps trust? There are there are kind of social and human issues here beyond yeah. and legal issues. But so that, do you, that's my point of view. Do you, do you see it as a as a, as a sort of a, a personal individual sovereignty issue or a national sovereignty issue more, or is is that is that two frontiers that both need to be looked at? I think it's across the board personally there are you know at national level there are issues around you know, what data security is and you can imagine kind of you know military operations that clearly take data sovereignty type questions very very seriously at the at the government and then the level um, you'd hope so but <laughs> you should hope so um but also you know and that that might be involve agreements around that mm -hmm. you might want to move them outside the uk in certain circumstances as well as have them inside the uk then you get down to organizational issues like looking at the risk profiles of organizations and how they deal with their data and what they want to be covered by or don't want to be covered by you know you can imagine that um certain European states who specialize in banking maybe want to have particular rules around sovereignty. And then when you think, well, actually, if they have rules around data sovereignty for their banking structures, maybe I should be thinking about that as well. So organizationally, people are thinking about it. And then I think individuals are the, the kind of bedrock of, you know, we're the ones who buy stuff from organizations or services from organizations. And if we're interested in it, then the businesses should be interested in it. And I think people will get interested in it. I think, you know, the, if you think about um, the conversation, you know, the conversation that's happened about Huawei and their involvement in 5G across the world for various reasons, that has kind of highlighted consumers' interest in what they see and understand about digital technology and where it comes from and how it's used. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is an, a big issue, I think, and will become increasingly so. I was a Huawei customer um, a few years ago. Not anymore. Uh, really? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. It, it definitely, definitely does affect you know how you decide to. You know, yeah, purchase. I mean, I've done some things with Huawei many years ago as well. They're an interesting organisation, but yes, um, definitely affects the consumer for sure. In 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 in, the, in a in a data driven economy, um, you know, uh, how can those the organizations you know large or small um strike a balance between data sovereignty but also that cross-border data collaboration that is so useful to mm. consumers I, so i think this is taking data very very seriously and thinking about it you need to make it as open as possible you need to make it as closed as necessary mm -hmm. and you know, the, the the recent leaks from the security services in the States reveal just how open their confidential, you know, that top secret was available to, I can't remember whether there's a million people, but there's certainly kind of clearance was, was very broad and that creates problems as well. So security of data is a kind of key issue and you're wanting to open up and share and you're wanting to create collaborative relationships, but you just need to be very concerned about this. And I think this idea of, security and taking security seriously but bring it a bit more strategically than just the technical securing of data mm -hmm. what are you wanting it for why are you storing it? i always you know i ask my students when they're doing you know they're, they're designing systems and they kind of immediately ask what's the date of birth what's the gender of the person what's their name i'm like what do, do you need to know that because mm -hmm. each piece of data that you ask is also a liability so, you know, just pause for a second and think, do you really care that, you know, what their date of birth is? Well, for many organizations, yes, they do. For others, they don't. But certainly gender, you know, everyone used to ask gender. What, you know, you remember websites with a drop down, male, female, why? Why was that ever an issue? And now it's a liability because you know that those organizations are scratching their head on what to do with that data. Mm. 
So it is just being very open to, to these issues. And then the sovereignty issue is kind of, I think it's about thinking about what the right solution is for that particular use case. And it's always this, this is a standard answer to everything. It's all focused on what the use case is and the particular domain it is um, that we're, we're looking at. Um, but yeah, but I don't, you know, it, I think it's an opportunity as well as a risk. It's by taking it seriously, you're also starting to reevaluate the data in your business. And that's always a good thing, like understanding the data and making sense of it and the, the kind of liabilities and opportunities is, is always the balance. Cool. On that positive note, then we will uh, we'll go to the ratings. So uh, data sovereignty, where, where is it in the clouds, in your opinion? I think it's probably a four for most businesses. For most businesses, you would hope it isn't an issue. For some businesses, it should be right up there. The question is for the listener, where are you? But um, that's where I think I would put them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, moving on to topic number three then. So third and final topic of the show. So we are looking at hyper automation. Okay. So um, I guess trying to consider uh, adoption of hyper automation in industry. Our business is yeah, rethinking those strategies to, to mitigate potential job displacement, I guess, is is probably one of the biggest topics at the moment um, and promote that that workforce upskilling to, to make use of it uh, at the same time. So this is always kind of hyper automation and it's kind of connection with robotic process automation and AI and all these kind of different technology strategies. We've been researching in the group here, um, RPA for quite a while, and um, my colleague Leslie Wilcox has kind of written a bit on 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 a uh, RPA or quite a lot on RPA. Um, and I think in terms of the job issue, there's usually an insatiable demand in society for many things. We we're not kind of a we're not a, a species that says I've had enough. And in many businesses, there's going to be huge opportunities to retrain people, but also to do better things and newer things. Mm -hmm. So I, the idea that it, I think getting the message across to employees that this doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're not, Leslie, my colleague kindly said, what is robotic process automation? It's taking the robots out of the human. It's taking those robotic work processes that none of us want to do mm. out so the human can actually do the bits that humans are, are really good at. And most businesses, when you look at them, think, actually, I've got lots of things humans could do if we could free them up from, you know, the swivel chair processes we used to call them where you're like you'd literally have two screens and you're swiveling between those two screens copy we know you know going to lots of organization there's loads of processes that are like that where it's just manual data entry and moving between boxes rpa and hyper automation should be in there um but you know to give you an example 15 20 years ago when you went to a, a cafe for a coffee, they just poured you a coffee out of a jug, right? Mm -hmm. That The idea that you would have a spe special person who specialized in making you coffee, which obviously increased the price significantly and the profit margin significantly, didn't make sense in the UK in the 90s and 80s. Like that, that wouldn't have made sense. Mm -hmm. It's only with economic progress that we can suddenly find this new job. Um, you know, the growth of therapists, the growth of kind of various roles around businesses. And I think automation will needs will do that and create these new things that we can't even think of just yet. The question, though, and the, the thing that I always worry about with automation of any description is ossifying existing processes rather than create dynamically changing process. And you're talking about AI before. Um, Noam Chomsky talked about AI not doing the engineering and not doing science. It's a great article. And what he says is that engineering is kind of the re repeated application of physics and laws to do something, build a bridge, build a building, etc. That AI is perfect for that. Science is the discovering of the new theory, the coming up with the new. And AI can't do that. If you went back to the time of Newton, there was no data on the planet that said 
hang on, there's this thing called gravity that the apple is attracted to the earth. That was a theory that he created out of very limited data. And it was wrong because later on, um, Einstein comes along and says relativity, right? That the earth is kind of affected by you know, gravitational waves that attract within the space time, as I understand it. Hmm. Um, that theory came out from his understanding of the data, but it was new, it was innovative. And I think hyper-automation will never do the innovative. It's not going to be the ones who come up with that new thing. Mm. And no AI will, really. They are just machines that do the engineering type. They can do the rule book. Yeah. There's the rule book really well. They're always focused on the past. They can identify um, correlations and causalities within, perhaps within that um, past, which can help us come up with theory. But for the really new, we're still going to need people, which is great because it gives us a role to do. And in businesses, that's great. But I am, you know, I'm impressed by how far businesses have got better at automating their processes. Mm. And RPA and these type of automation solutions are kind of halfway house. I mean, your traditional solution was obliterate the existing processes and install an ERP system. You know, we used to go back to... SAP, hugely expensive, hugely risky, created often very static, ossified systems. But I do kind of worry a little bit when we talk about hyper-automation that we take this patchwork of systems that exist in many organizations and create quite um, fragile yeah. automation solutions between them that run really well, but aren't easy to update. And not adap adaptable either. I think that adding automation on top can just add more complexity rather than cleaning up the process. And that, that that's where it worried me. We were, you know, ERP was all about cleaning up the processes and my God, you can't clean them all up. And it was a mess. It was difficult. But moving so far over where you just automate existing processes, it's a, it's, it's a kind of interesting one. And the human being in there might be the, the thing that stops it. It's like... <clears throat> It's so hard to capture what humans do in their jobs. Mm. You know, the person who sits there and actually once a year they spot something, but that spotting something is a um, a huge benefit. It, it might be there. And I, I kind of just to sort of finish on my rant here, <laughs> my big, you asked me where I started from. I was sponsored by an IT company during my degree and I won't name them, but they don't exist anymore. And the guy has very much retired, so it's kind of not a risk. But I was just an intern. I used to work, because I was sponsored, I worked with them every summer in a particular department. And I was the intern who spotted that one of their spreadsheets had a division and then a multiplication, rather than a multiplication and then a division. Mm -hmm. And this spreadsheet had been created five years earlier by some other intern and was used for billing projects. It was costing them about ten thousand pounds a year. This spreadsheet because they were met, they were rounding loose mm. and therefore losing some money. And I got an incredibly nice reference from the person involved, which helped me in my career. And a <laughs> thing of let's never mention this again. So I repaired the spreadsheet and we never mentioned it again, other than now and you know when I talk about it because there's no loss now. But imagine if you are ossifying more and more processes where there's not the human going, hang on a minute, are we doing this right? Or where's that got? Or hang on a minute, there seems to be, you know, piles and pile in the back of some warehouse somewhere. There's just piles and piles of things that are piling up because it's misordering something. This is the stuff that worries me without a human looking at it. Um, but a bit of common sense. Easily able to, to tune it and, and change it. So. It's super interesting. AI will be there. Everyone's going to be jumping up and down about it and investing in it. Um, and it will solve lots of problems, particularly things like mergers and acquisitions, where you end up with two computer systems that are hard to merge. Mm -hmm. You know, Look at what's happened in um, Deutsche Bank in Germany. They've, their post, they've been um, integrating for kind of years and years, their um, post bank or something. Um, and they've only they just had to throw away the postbank system and bring it into the new system. Now you can imagine if they had a thousand people data cleansing, right, in that project. You can imagine AI coming in and doing data cleansing pretty nicely and maybe better than the human can. 
you know, spotting anomalies in existing mm -hmm. data. Those type of processes, I think, are going to be fantastic for this hyper automation and may be really useful in that M&A space. But, um, but we need to have really good oversight of it. I've actually used um, AI to do some data cleansing myself for, for, yeah. for, for marketing data. Mm. Uh, and it, it, it definitely reduced the yeah. amount of time. Uh, I think it, 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 it was about 2,000 data points and, and, and I got it to even do some guesswork of, of where those, those people were based and what their first name was and what their surname was, et cetera, et cetera, and what gender they were. And uh, what probably should have taken me about 10 days to do took me about 10 minutes. Uh, so I was very exactly. happy. I mean, I was very happy for that. And I know, recently, <laughs> Deutsche Bank probably did that and they've got yeah. an awful lot of data. Um, and that's fantastic, right? This was one of the classic problems that we used to have in, in, in merging systems and connecting and upgrading systems, changing systems, um, is you know, that type of work. And if it can help, then brilliant. But if it's injecting more bias and more problems, then, you know, we need to be cautious of that. It definitely needs that human guidance as well, for yeah. sure. So, hyper automation. Where 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 do we stand? In terms of the number, and yeah, on the ratings up in the clouds, where are we? You know, I think. What did I say? A four for the previous one. Yes. Yeah. I think this is a six or a seven. Okay. I think we will. The the reason being, I think we will slowly see businesses using this as a stepping stone. And where we haven't got is hyper automation of integrating API based services. So if you think about linking hyper automation of your existing business processes and then putting them on steroids by connecting outside ML solutions into them, mm. which you know draw on other data and other possibilities, then then that's kind of a a huge opportunity. So I'm doing some research on the travel ecosystem. So how we book hotel rooms. There's lots of AI-based solutions based on ML that allow them to do things like price optimization, but price optimization across the marketplace. So each company can optimize prices with a wider understanding of the market and the dynamics of the market. And you can see lots of opportunities to bring new solutions like that in once you are automating and have kind of those type of hyper-automation processes in place that allow you to bring them in. So I think they I think there's big opportunities here, but I think people need to get their heads around it. Um, the highest score of the day, though, seven out of ten. So seven out of ten for uh, for hyper automation was it six six five six out of ten? You said for for LLMs and data sovereignty was was four out of ten. I should have I should have guessed bringing in a professor of of digital innovation on that might have some of some of our lower scores compared to our other guests. I'm always critical. Come on, I spend my time being critical. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. Hey, yeah. I started off suggesting LLMs probably to most listeners are 11. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair dues, fair dues. Um, let's uh, let's move on uh, to uh, the, the, the fun segment uh, of the show. Uh, my favorite segment, top of the ops. So, indeed, in the realm of cloud technology, and uh, ops in the tech industry as a whole, it's ever evolving uh, with a new one seeming to be popping up every conversation. Uh, the recent one I heard uh, was uh, uh, ML SecOps. Um, I actually predicted this one coming up, uh, funnily enough, a couple of weeks ago, and I went to a networking event. I think it was last week, and uh, one of the one of the one of the speakers there uh, uh, mentioned ML SecOps in person for the first time. I went, ah, gotcha. Uh, so I was quite happy with that one. But um, yeah, ML SecOps, I think, it focuses on integrating machine learning with security operations. So you know, it's a, a, a plugging two ops together, which is uh, quite nice. But uh, but will. Yourself, yeah. Is there any ops that have, that have captured your interest recently, and, and and why so? Well, I was kind of struck you know, when we were talking before this. I was trying to come up with something like profit ops or strategy <laughs> ops, and then we discover that rev ops exists, which is this idea of revenue and profit and thinking about the business within this. And I know people have talked about kind of finance and and bringing all these together and. You know, a, a lot of it has happened because 
what we really wanted to do is build operations that deliver business benefits. And it, what we're really trying to do with business strategy and digital business strategy is align the aim of the organization, whether that's a profit organization or a non-profit organization, but their overall aims, and then deliver benefits from that through digital technology. So what you're really wanting to do is bring the ops together with the business, the strategy. And RevOps kind of comes close to, to that. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm not denying the importance of SecOps and all these other things. And particularly when IT can be a really large expense for businesses, which is today has moved into being an operational expense. It used to be um, used to be a fixed cost, right? You bought a server room and you filled it full of sun machines and you installed Solaris and you started running your websites. Mm. And then once you paid the fixed cost, um, it was done. Now it's an operational expense. So what's happening is your cloud bill comes in every month. So you better put that, put that kind of is now aligning people's thoughts quite closely to the idea of what the business is getting out of it. Mm. And as we start adding AI and the bills associated with that, that's ever going to increase. So yes, we used to be seen as kind of the, the IT department used to be seen as kind of the back office part that you just pay for. You have to pay for HR, you have to pay for IT. They do the email and they do the word. Now, aligning it to business strategy, I think is really important and keeping that alongside the operations is really important. So I like RevOps. But I like your ML SecOps as well. <laughs> awesome. Awesome stuff. Well, thank you very much. I think now that's time uh, for us to uh, end the show. Um, so to our listeners out there, thanks again for tuning in and listening to Will and I. We hope you enjoyed the show and stay tuned for our next episode where we'll have another exciting guest. Uh, don't forget to like uh, and share uh, and subscribe to the podcast and follow me and Lawrence Harvey on LinkedIn to stay up to date. Um, thanks again uh, to you, Will. Uh, for being our guest today it's been an absolute pleasure having you uh, on the show um, and as as per usual do you have a hot take to leave our listeners with and keep them thinking uh, beyond the episode um, what would I think of uh, I think just aligning business with the, the aim of these large language models or AI or whatever products that you're looking at and thinking, what is this really delivering to the business? And that's such a kind of cliche and everybody says it, but I think it's it's really important. And all the things that we do on business strategy and um, when you go to a board level, that's what you're trying to communicate. As an IT person, you're trying to communicate what can this do for the business? And I think all this focus on technology, you know, need to bring it back to that. So that's my takeaway. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. There you go, folks. Thanks again and see you next time. Goodbye.